This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I've not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range then visit their website that can be found in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife conservation and nature. I am your host Ryan Dalton, thank you very much for clicking play on the pod. Damn, thank you for that, it's so important that everyone does that, thanks. Oof, I am feeling very tranquil. I am at a place called Waterloo Park, which is not far from my house. Uh, it's a nice little park, it's like a recreational park, but they've got like nice gardens and um, they don't mow it everywhere all the time. They live long grass, they live wild areas. It's really nice. I'm actually in the place that they call the, they call it a nature reserve. I mean, I wouldn't quite, I mean, you know, it's, uh, oh my God. A moorhen just attacked a pigeon. That was brilliant. What a moment. I don't know what the pigeon was doing. It was just being a pigeon. It was a bit bumbly around. That was amazing. The moorhen was like, <laughs> off. <laughs> I'm in the bit that they call a nature reserve. Like I said, I wouldn't quite call it. It's not quite the Cairngorms, you know what I mean? It's like it's just it's a body of water with a, like a walkway around it. They've got two like they've got a couple of like flotation islands with some plants. Got some, a yellow yaris, I think, that grows in there, uh, which is nice uh, for the pollinators and stuff. And then for the nesting nesting waterfowl, it's very nice. Um, but I'm feeling content. I'm feeling nice and chilled. You've got some nice colours around me with the autumn leaves. This autumn is weird, isn't it? I mean, obviously, I don't know where everyone's listening from around the world, but UK people in London, this is the warmest autumn I've ever had. It's just, it's just been such a hot year. It's, it was 19 degrees Celsius in London today. That is not normal in October. What's that about? The de- it was 19 degrees today in London, the day after our new Prime Minister, uh, Rishi Sunak, said he's not going to go to COP27. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, let's not talk about that. Um, I hope you all be well. Uh, I've been busy and grand. We are planning lots of screenings for... Oh, if you watched the live screening of Beyond the Trigger, thank you so much for doing that. That really, really, <laughs> that really means a lot. Thank you for, thank you for doing so. Last Thursday, oh, it was so, it was honestly, it was so, 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 so much fun. So thank you for joining to watch. It is now available. Obviously, if you want to watch Beyond the Trigger, it's on YouTube. You've got the live version with the Q&A afterwards, or you've just got the standalone film. Um, watch it, share it with anyone you think might want to watch it as well. That's nice. We're planning lots of university screenings around the UK and really just planning to take the film further and potentially, shh, potentially, some more projects coming soon, but shh, don't tell anyone. Um, so it's all very exciting stuff. But talking of exciting stuff, I want to talk about um, something that was in the news quite recently that got, got a lot of shares, a lot of people talking about it, and a lot of people very excited, and that was a bison that was born. Now, it's very exciting when an animal's born, right? Everyone gets happy about that. But what was special about this particular baby bison uh, that got everyone's attention? Well, it was the location of where it happened. It was happening in a space in England, in Kent, of all places, at a place called Wildwood Trust. Now, Wildwood Trust are doing this uh, fascinating project where they are doing a semi-release 
of bison into an ancient bit of woodland to see the effects and the impacts that they have on the local ecosystem and its biodiversity. They are testing that alongside human forestry work and alongside cattle breeds as well to see what the what the differences are are there strengths with the bison that we don't get in other other methods or is there strengths with methods that we're currently using that we don't get with using animals like bison so it's a really interesting project um, and this baby uh, baby bison that has been born is a bit of a milestone because it's a new addition to the herd it's going to help strengthen things and yeah it's very exciting and the reason why i wanted to bring that up with you is because this was happening and pretty much as I was recording this episode with none other than Paul Whitfield, who is the director of Wildwood Trust. He kept it a secret. Damn you, Paul. You didn't tell me. Um, I was hoping I was going to get wind of some information. <laughs> so mere days after we recorded our episode, I saw this bit of news hit the media and it was very exciting. So this episode is with Paul. Uh, we speak about Wildwood Trust, about how it came around uh, in its 20 years, what what, what its original goals were, what were the goals, always bison? Or was there other things that they were focusing on and it kind of just organically came around? Um, but much like other places that are looking to rewild or wild sites, uh, Wildwood Trust have that same kind of passion, that mentality of not just restoring our natural systems, but how to, how to engage people with this, how to uh, get people involved uh, to benefit not just the planet but communities and, and things like this as well in in the uk so it's a fascinating chat i've been to wildwood trust before it, it's uh it's a lovely lovely place and this is the first time i've actually recorded an episode with someone at a location that i've actually visited um because it isn't too far i visited i think it was 2019 i went down there and i got to meet the bears it was fantastic so the first thing i will say is if you are able to get down to wildwood trust in kent i highly 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 recommend it it's a wonderful day out and um, although the bears will be going into hibernation so if you want to see them maybe wait till next spring it was just lovely to get the chance to learn more about how the place runs um, and i also look forward to going back to meet paul and maybe doing an on-location episode as well so this episode is quite simply as they always are titled wildwood trust with paul whitfield Paul, welcome to Into the Wild. Absolutely lovely to have you here. Um, it feels like we've been planning. This is a, This is one of these guests that I've got on that I feel like I've been trying to. We've been trying to get this sorted for a while, haven't we? Absolutely. Uh, but, th but thanks for having me on, Ryan. It's, it's it's great to actually be meeting you on screen and talking to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still a hangover from the pandemic, but it's a nice version. It's a nice hangover, isn't it? But welcome to the show. Let's start with the main question, Paul. Do you want to tell everyone who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm Paul Whitfield. I'm the Director General of the Wildwood Trust. And how long have you been there? Have you been there since day one? I've been Director General for six years now. Mm. So effectively, I run the charity. Um, but I've been involved basically since the charity has been running for about a year. And this is our 20th year. So I've been involved for about 18, 19 years in the charity. Wow. Well, so you have really seen the process go kind of all the way through. Oh, uh, absolutely. Since the very early days. <laughs> and what was... I? Before we get on to my next question, I want to ask this. Like, has it changed much or was the aims of Wildwood still there from the core? Because 20 years is quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because 20 years ago, when we sort of started up, it was always going to be a rewilding charity. That right. was a fundamental part of what it was, but also to create a visitor centre where people could engage with our native species. Mm. But we didn't use that rewilding word publicly for a long time because it was a bit of a dirty word. It had a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and a, and a lot of skepticism around it. Um, mm. But sort of five years ago, when we sort of reshaped our vision and our mission about what we really wanted to be as a charity, we mm. put it right there at the at the forefront. And so our our mission now is protecting, conserving, and rewilding British wildlife. Mm. So it's always what we've been about. But it's been pushed more to the fore, and we've really escalated the scale of our conservation work recently as well. I mean, you really have. I mean, that's almost an understatement. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of the history, you know, in the 20 years that we've been running, you know, conservation's always been at the absolute heart of what we do. Yeah. So we've been breeding and in captivity and releasing literally thousands of water voles hundreds mm. of dormice and red squirrels. You know, we've bred and released beavers up in, in the Scottish project. You know, it's always been the heart of what we, we do, but we've really massively put it to the front of, of what we yeah. do and really pushed to increase the delivery and the impact of that work because it's, it's so important. And when I visited, I think that was that was clear from even just a visitor's perspective because I, did, I purposely I like to not do a lot of research when I visit places like that just as a as a guest because I like to see how much do I learn about the place when I visit. But that that did come across, although like you said, it was in the background. It still was kind of communicated to the public when they're arriving, going, you know, these are the projects we're involved with. This is what yeah. we're doing, and I loved that about the place because it's very easy to talk to look at a. Um, you know, whatever we label, label it, wildlife park, a zoo, a collection, uh, or anything like that, and say, you know, we're part of active breeding programs, but they're always so focused on exotic wildlife, yes. whereas the focus you've had is very much, you know, wildlife we either once had, or we do still currently have, or are getting back. Uh, getting back. And I really like that about Wildwood. Yeah, and, and it really sets us apart from anyone else that's doing this sort of thing. You know, if, mm. you, if you come to Wildwood, everything that you see is either a native species, used to be a native species, We've got a couple of invasive species here too to tell the story of those, but it's it's what we've got and what yeah. we've lost, really. Yeah, and it's and it's it's a lovely story to tell, and it's told very well. Before we get more onto Wildwood, though, let's let's learn. Right, you love nature. I mean, yes. the audience can't see this, but the background that you're literally sat in front of is a beautiful woodland shot <laughs> behind you. So you love the natural world. So what's been your nature highlight in the last seven days? I mean, it's interesting. There's been a few, actually. But I think the one that's, that's really exciting is actually two days ago, we took arrival of a new animal at Wildwood, uh, mm. who's going to be with us, a, a, new, a new species. Well, it's not a new species, uh, but he's a young male European elk. So that's he's exciting. just arrived. We've got a we've got a female European elk called Caramel, who's a yeah. I met Caramel. Yeah, she's beautiful. She was lovely. Yeah, I, I was very lucky. Well, she didn't want to come anywhere near me, which was her choice, and absolutely fine. Um, but I did see her closer up. She was beautiful. Yeah. So so we've got a young male to to join her. Uh, they're, they're separated at the minute, but they can smell each other through the fence, and they have been doing that. <laughs> Uh, but we'll be reintroducing them to each other when they're settled in, when he's settled in. But it's, it's he's amazing. I mean, he's only 18 months old, but he's got a little little set of antlers already. And they're oh, bless just him. such beautiful, weird mm. animals to, to look mm. at. And, and most people are, are just blown away when they see them for the first yeah. time. So they're, they're so tall. And it looks like you've got the legs of a giraffe, the body of a horse, <laughs> and sort of the face of an anteater and sort of <laughs> altered them all together. Yeah, it's one of those mix and match animals, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. But they're, they're beautiful, elegant animals when you see them in the woodland. And at the moment, he's the only male elk in, in England. There's one up in Scotland, but there, there are almost none in, in the UK at all. Wow, and and this is, so the European elk is something we did have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they uh, yeah. went extinct here probably about two, maybe three thousand years ago. Mm. Um, but no, they're absolutely a, a missing native species. And again, like many of these species, they've 
perform quite an important ecological function. You know, one of the reasons they've got such weird long legs is spend a lot of time in water systems, in ponds and rivers, right. and they eat a lot of aquatic vegetation. And they help clicky ponds and, and river systems mm. clear. But no, we, we lost them a long time ago. It's exciting though, isn't it? I love it. It's, it's also interesting because I think, you know, I don't want to be too blanketed with this with, with the UK, but I think one of our parts of our culture is that we have forgot about our lost species. I do think we absolutely forgot that. Yeah. We are remembering it with work like what you guys are doing, but it's, it's so exciting to remember or just appreciate what we once had to know, like, oh, it, it could, it could live here, like, you know, environmentally, it could. So it's, it's so exciting to hear about those kind of species. Uh, absolutely. Um, and that's one of the joys of what we do is people mm. will be walking around and they'll be, you know, looking at our European brown bears and going, oh, they're amazing. But we never had those here. We did. We said, yes. Yeah. You know, these would have just been wandering through the, the you know, the bling woodland that would have had yeah. bears in the, in the. Oh, it's just less so exciting to think about, isn't it? It's just so exciting. <laughs> this is why rewilding is really, or wilding, whatever we want to label it, but it's kicked off because it is just exciting. <laughs> it is. It's really exciting. It's really inspirational as well. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about Wildwood. What can people expect? You told us a little bit here, especially species-wise, you've already told us a little bit, but what can people expect as a visitor if they came to Wildwood? Yeah, so we've got two parks now. We've got a park in Kent and a park in Devon. Mm-hmm. They're both about 40 acres and they're, you know, they're set in ancient woodland. And the whole sort of idea behind how, how we go about it is when you're here and you're walking through the park, you are walking through ancient woodlands on yeah. pathways. And from time to time, you'll come across the missing species that should be here or the species mm-hmm. that we have. So yeah. it's supposed to be sort of a, an exploration of, of, of what we've lost and, and what we do have. And you know, things like badgers and foxes that people only tend to see when they're dead at the side of the road and pine martens, mm-hmm. all these species that we still have got, but people never see, you get the opportunity to see them. And the enclosures are as, as natural as possible. So if they really are. Our, our bear enclosure is an acre and a half of woodland, and the bears have that space to explore and spend time in. And we make it as rich and complex for them as possible, so they can exhibit as much of those natural behaviours as they can. Um, and most of the animals are just in, you know, in, in, because they're native species, we don't have to do an awful lot in terms of managing those environments, just keeping them looking nice and rich and, and yeah, vibrant for the animals to to, to live in really mm. the the bear enclosure was one that stood out I mean obviously it stood out because of the size because of the fact that it's got the walkways above and it's got bears in it which yes. was a plus um, yeah, and there's a rope <laughs> bridge that goes across it that exactly you can walk across and see the bears from above and, and it was yeah, such amazing. a uh, it was a non-invasive way of viewing the bears as well. I found I, it's almost because they didn't look up when we were there, no. and I thought that's a really good sign <laughs> that they are either very comfortable or they might not even know that you're just above them. Like I don't know. Like they were so deep in the foliage, they couldn't really tell they were there. But your bear enclosure is actually an enclosure that I've used as an example on social media to just discuss with people going you know, you can't blanket some views about captivity because, you know, the images you're using of a bear looking depressed in captivity, well, look at this one. Like, this is captivity. Yeah, and our bears are rescued bears. They're bears that were taken from a canned hunting centre in Bulgaria. Mm. You know, these are not animals that can live in the wild. We've not taken animals that should be in the wild and put in captivity. They are damaged, traumatised animals that we rehabilitate and rehome. They can't live in the wild. They when they came to us, they had no idea how to be a bear. They'd never seen a tree or walked on grass. Yeah, you know, it's, it's mad, isn't it? Horrendous lives that they'd had. So they're not animals that 
should be in the wild. They're, they're rescued animals. And mm. there are other bears out there that need rescuing and we're hopefully looking to potentially rescue another two next year, which That's is amazing. very exciting. It's, yeah, it's great stuff. It's just improving that life of an animal that, you know, is in a situation that cannot be, like you say, cannot be changed. So let's, yeah, absolutely. You know, to give it the best situation and the best life possible. So why was Wildwood set up originally? I mean, you gave us a little bit of a, you know, of the visions or the the dreams of Wildwood and yeah. some of that, but why was it set up and how has it got to where it is now? I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting story. So it was set up, like I say, about 20 years ago. Mm. And it was when Kent Wildlife Trust were doing the first UK beaver project at Ham Fen in Kent. So they were importing beavers to put into this fenland enclosure and see what they would do as ecosystems mm. engineers. And one of the trustees of Kent Wildlife Trust at the time is a guy called Ken West. Yeah. Because the, there's been a visitor attraction animal thing here at Wildwood since the 70s in various shapes or forms. Yeah. <laughs> and it was run by a chap called, you might have heard of, called Derek Gow at the time. I, I of course, have heard this name. <laughs> uh, so Derek was running the place and he was importing the beavers, quarantining them at Wildwood, and then they were going out to the project. Right. And Ken had always had a dream of creating this sort of native species visitor centre charity. And that was really the essence of it. And so the charity was formed and took over the site. Wow. That's, 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 that's a cool story as well. It's nice. Yeah. And, and do you think it's like, so the changes, I don't know if there's been a lot of changes in 20 years, but if there has, do you think they're going to continue to come? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've always been an ambitious charity. We run mm. on a very sort of commercial basis. Um, we get very little in the way of grants and funding from mm. external organisations. 80% of our income comes from people who visit us and wow. who become members and who buy things in our shops and in, in our cafe. You know, that's 80% of our income. So we're very much sort of a grassroots organisation. Mm. We're funded by our members and it gives us a lot of freedom, actually, to pursue things in, in the way that we to want. To do what you want, yeah. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Within reason, yeah. But that's built and built. So mm. four years ago, I think we had 4,000 members. We've now got 60,000 members. Jesus Christ. So we've got a large we've got in four now. years? Sorry? In four years? Oh, no, sorry. When we've been running for about four years. Oh, um, right. Had, okay. Yeah. So it's built up slowly o- over that time. But yeah, that's still like a massive increase. Like yeah, so it's, a, it's a huge increase. You know, and our our membership really funds the majority of what we do. You know, even through lockdown, when we were shut for six months, the vast majority of our members carried on paying their subscriptions, which was amazing, and it mm. allowed us to to carry on without without too many problems. Yeah, I, do you know, I was just going to ask because of that, like, how was lockdown? But like, you know, if. <laughs> Yeah, everyone's face. Um, It it was a really challenging time. I mean, in the year we were locked down and shut, physically shut to the public for six months. Oh, wow. And we did. We lost a million pounds of income Mm. during that period of time. But with things like furlough and and the rest of it, we were able to sort of cut an awful lot of our costs. We obviously didn't invest anything for that that year at all. Yeah, right. Um, But yeah, we were able to come through it in a pretty strong position, but it was was a huge challenge. And, you know, it it was a huge threat to the the organisation and what we do. Mm, Yeah, yeah, God. I I mean, you know, every story in every place is completely different, but it always has that same backbone of, yeah, it was... (laughs) In hard. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Uh, and, you know, think things were changing on a week-by-week basis. You know, we'd mm. be shut one day and then we'd get an announcement that we could open and would open and then a week later we had to shut again and it's just... Yeah, it was horrendous. It really was. It really was. I think for every industry had its challenges that, like I said, that backbone of 
like that that kind of situation was real yeah. where everyone had them for different reasons um i must ask you you've been there throughout the 19 odd years at wildwood what's your favorite thing about the place um, where do you love to go? Like if you went, if Paul went for a walk <laughs> throughout Wildwood, where do you usually? Because I've worked in like uh, wildlife parks before, yep. and if I had a busy or stressed day, there was always an area I went to. Yeah, I mean, just walking around the park is, mm. you know, it's like a tonic. If I'm having a stressed day or a difficult day, and I just go for a walk around the park because you're in the trees. Yeah. You're in nature and it, mm. it's 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 lovely. So any part of the park is great. It some it varies. For for nine months we had a pair of bear cubs here who we are now in our <laughs> park in Devon. So for that nine months, I went and saw the bear cubs every single day. And that <laughs> yeah, did not I could I couldn't have a sad face. So they, they were just amazing. <laughs> so they were just you know about a year old at that point and just destroying their enclosure and running. <laughs> amazing yeah so yeah it, it, it varies at the minute i we've, we've got some beavers in we've not had any beavers for a little while but we've, mm. we've got beavers in the park for the first time so pop up and see the beavers watch them swimming around their pond eating yeah. the trees that we planted in there um, yeah. are they as busy as they are when they're in the wild when they're in captivity yeah absolutely yeah really? it, it's amazing to watch the problem is most of their activity is at dawn and dusk um but we've got a pair of um rescued beavers at the moment that came originally from Scotland, but from the Cornish Seal Sanctuary. So they're about a year old. Mm. Um, and really they're with us to rehabilitate them, get them back up to strength, get them fully grown so that they can hopefully go out to one of the future wild releases. Oh, that's amazing. That'll be a lovely process to kind of watch through as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So watching them get, you know, they're, they've only been with us a few weeks, but when they came in, they could only swim quite short distances underwater and then now swimming sort of the full length of the pond that we've got for them. It's, yeah, amazing. it's nice to see. Oh, that's so cool. I've got to, so I feel like there's going to either be like one answer to this question or you're like, I don't know, I've got an Excel spreadsheet list answer for you. But what are the, what are the goals or the, like views for the next few years for Wildwood. What are you hoping for? I mean, we are really busy. I mean, obviously, there's the Bison Project, which we'll get onto, which has yeah. been huge. But also, it, next spring, we're doing the first UK reintroduction of the Red Bill Chuff. They will be out in in Dover around the White Cliffs. So we've bred the birds, and they're they are they're ready to go in spring when the weather's right in 2024 hoping to do the in in collaboration with Durrell and Vincent Wildlife Trust mm. uh, create a new population of wildcats outside Scotland so oh, we're looking exciting. at a, a really exciting project in Wales and we've built our captive breeding facility for that and we'll hopefully start the the first breeding of those cats next year so a really really exciting project and getting you know that population of wildcats back in back outside mm. Scotland because at the moment they're still functionally extinct in the UK um, mm. So it's really, really exciting. We're also looking at things like um, pine martins um, across the south of England, white storks. So we've been breeding white storks. Four of our white storks went off to NEP this year, and we're really lucky to be invited to join the white stork project. So mm. they got released with, I think, 37, 38 birds this year. So we went over, watched them being released. It's That's absolutely amazing. amazing watching yeah. them take to the skies. They're incredible um, birds. One of the wildwood birds has got one of the trackers on, and it's currently near Madrid, so they, they travel a fast distance. Jealous of that bird. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, yeah, so it made it across to France. It was in Paris. We were excited. Now it's yeah, it's in Spain now. So it's just doing its gap year at the moment. <laughs> absolutely. So out there do, do, doing its thing. But, um, yeah. you know, it's, 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 uh, that, that's this huge amount that we're doing. I mean, mm. we have 
between the two parks, about 10,000 school kids visiting us a year, mm. um, learning about nature, learning about rewilding and that exciting stuff. But one of the things we really want to do within the next five years is actually build, and we haven't decided exactly what it's going to be called, the School of Rewilding, the Rewilding Institute, nice. the residential education centre where we can run courses, you know, from preschool children to primary school children, secondary school, further education, adults, you know, teaching people about rewilding and also the practical side of it. Lots mm. of people out there at the minute have got a bit of land and want to rewild it. And we get phone calls and, you know, I know Net get calls and Derek gets calls, but there's no central sort of information hub right training facility for this. And then really mm. that's what we want to try and try and build. Mm. Um, obviously build it build on site here in Kent, potentially have one in Devon. And actually come and you know have some hands-on practical experience and see some of the animals too. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, yeah, like you said, a lot going on and some exciting stuff as well. I must ask these two questions if you don't mind me asking. So with bird releases, um, whether we're doing uh, new populations or adding to, with the last couple of years with avian flu and stuff like that, how has that played a part in like the risk assessment of of that work? Has that delayed the projects or does that have to, how strong of a part, I guess, does that play in that kind of work? It, it does play a part. And without bird flu, we might have done the, be able to do the chuff reintroduction. But mm. yeah, it's just made everything more complicated, far more risk assessments. In the chuff project, we've had risk assessment by the International Zoo Vets, so ISVG. So they, they, they've done all our disease risk assessment. Lots of conversations with Natural England and DEFRA and APHA yeah. about bird flu because there is bird flu in the area mm. where the chuffs are potentially going to be going out. But they're, they're, they're COVIDs, they're very resistant to bird flu, which is good news. But mm. clearly, all the transporting of birds and everything in and out of the area is, is a huge challenge. Yeah. Um, and it has, yeah, it's definitely had an impact and delay things. But it, it looks like we're going to be stuck with it for some time. For a you know, while, it's yeah. Persisting and it's not, not really going away at all. Mm, yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's certainly a worry every, for, you know, for everyone, um, from literally everyone as well, actually, I would say, that's involved with any form of using the natural land. I think it's a, it's a big worry. So with like releasing things like wildcats and pine martins or, or just looking at that, how much work do you have to do with surrounding, I guess, landowners, farmers or just communities with that kind of acceptance level of those species potentially coming back? I mean, I know I'm not saying they pose a huge threat, but also we there could be a community or a culture of fear anyway like how how much of that does that play into those kind of projects yeah no i mean that that's really important i mean and it's it's a fundamental part of any sort of reintroduction like this mm. you have to engage with talk to and and listen to the local stakeholders and landowners and the, the people in the area you know that's that's going to be the next few years of the wildcat project is, mm. is talking to those people what, what's really interesting actually is from the very early part of that the majority of people aren't scared of the wildcats or particularly worried about them. They don't know what they are. They don't realize <laughs> yeah. that they're missing yeah. and they don't really see much value um, um, in a reintroduction. They sort of, what, what's the point? Why, why would you want yeah. to do that? Which is, you know, it's worrying, you know, it's better than people being incredibly hostile, but actually it shows how much, how disconnected we are. Mm. Exactly. As you said earlier, you know, we mm. don't even know what we're missing. We don't know that we should have wildcats. We don't know that this is a species that should be living in our woods and that we've lost. It's just mm. it, it, it's just disappeared in the midst of time. You know, in yeah. Scotland, they've done a great piece of work. You know, the, the Highland tiger, you know, people are re- know about it. They're really proud of the Scottish wildcat even though it's a European wildcat, um, <laughs> but they've, they've done a great PR job with them. There's still a lot of opposition in some sectors and 
the shooting yeah. sector and gamekeepers who persecuted them historically. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to see that people just don't realize that it's something that's missing. But it's it's important to do that. And you know, in terms of the Pine Martin work that we're doing at the moment, you know, we'd love to do reintroductions, but at the moment, what we're doing is we're working out who we need to talk to in the areas mm. that we're thinking about before we even before we even start looking at reintroductions, just to engage with them and talk to them and find out how people feel about them. I mean, the listeners will know something I've, I've looked in a lot in, in other countries is, you know, that kind of community value, like you said, that, that they don't have the value to be back. So don't, yeah. it's almost like, yeah, does does it currently hold enough value for it to thrive? If not, well, then you're not there yet. Like, I, I that's my personal yeah. belief. It's like, you know, it has to have that value, whether that is socially, culturally, economically, it doesn't matter. It's like, it has to have a value to someone because yeah. it, it comes back to that sentence we've said seven 0.8 million times on the podcast is people save what they love absolutely and, and if they yeah. know about it they're more likely to love it that's it's completely true i mean it's one of the nice things about the chuff reintroduction in in kent mm. is the chuffs are a really important cultural bird for canterbury or you know, the canterbury coat of arms is three little black birds right. most people in canterbury know that and they see it on pub signs all over yeah. <laughs> they have no idea that there's a chuff yeah, so that's chuffs. like your starting so, point, right? <laughs> absolutely. The mayor's regalia has three chuffs on it. There's stained glass windows in the cathedral with three chuffs. So it gives a great talking point. And actually, people have been really excited about it, even though it's you know, it's just a chuff. It's got a lot of cultural significance, and people are really excited about the reintroduction. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I think it, that's I think another point is like finding what the animal means culturally to a region, yeah. to a country, or anything like that. Is once you because again, it's I I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I'm making this up. I'm pretty sure I'm not. But I always hear it in England when people go like, oh, we don't have culture anymore. And I'm like, we do. Yeah, like, we literally do. I mean, me having a whiskey at 4 p.m. is my culture. <laughs> it's a very it's a very rich culture. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's also very, very diverse. And it's finding mm. what, what interests people. I mean, you know, pine martins, a lot of people haven't got a clue what a pine martin is, all that mm. they're missing or, or why they're important. But if you explain to them that if we bring pine martins back, we might also get to a point where we can bring red squirrels back to the south of England. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. Let's talk about this bison project you muttered about a minute ago, because I'm, and I'm glad you did because it's kind of segued me in. Um, so am I right to call it a semi-release? It's a release into an enclosed area. Cool, right. So, so it's we... not a release into the wild, hmm. but it's a, it's, it's a release into a, a large area of woodland. It has to be fenced for legal reasons right. at this point in time. But it, yeah, it's, so it's an enclosed area, but it's, it will be, they'll be managed as much like a wild population as it's possible to do. Right. Okay. Cool. Because I wanted to get that terminology right. Because I think when we're talking about things like this, I don't want to like misquote something or get it wrong. No, so uh, absolutely. And people on Twitter get very angry when the the newspapers <laughs> call it a, a reintroduction really? or an introduction or into the wild. But the fundamental point is they've been introduced into an area to act as ecosystems engineers to rewild that area. Fundamentally, to me, it doesn't really matter what you call it or the detailed terminology. They're there to to act as ecosystems engineers in that space and create an explosion of biodiversity. I will just say you also did, 
just say into the wild, which means I have to take a shot of my drink. That is the rule. <laughs> There we go. Um, <laughs> no, you're completely right. And I think, you know, whilst language is incredibly important because, you know, it defines what we're doing or what we are or everything like that. But like you said, the other part of it is the physical, what is actually happening with the why rather than just what it's called and stuff. And I think that is very important. So tell us a bit about this project. So how it came about, because I I met some of the bison when I was there at Wildwood and I loved it. don't know if they're the same ones. I'd imagine they might be, but... Um, I loved meeting them. So how did that project come around and why did it come around? What I'd been thinking about and talking about with others at Wildwood about a bison introduction into the Baleen, the Baleen's the woodland that's right mm. next to Wildwood for about 10 years. Uh, <laughs> it just seemed an, like an obvious thing to do. The woodland's owned by Kent Wildlife Trust. And like I say, we worked on and off with them for the last 20 years. And it re- what it took was it is a new CEO at Kent Wildlife Trust um, who started, I must be four years ago now. And we met up shortly after he started. And we were really talking about how we could work together collaboratively. Mm. You know, we we both want to do the same things, which yeah. is create a wilder Kent, bring back some of these missing species, you know, look after nature, create bigger, more joined up, better sort of wild landscapes. Mm. Uh, and the bison was just one of the many things that we talked about what we might be able to work on together. Um, and the more we talked about it, the more excited about it we got. Um, and then we actually did a trip over to the Netherlands and we got a minibus. It must have been about 12 of us on it. People from mm. Wildwood, people from Kent Wildlife Trust. And we headed over to the Netherlands to look at a few of their projects. And over on the way there, there were loads of people on that bus who were sort of scratching their heads going, Bison, mm, don't know, mm. seems a bit of a mad idea. Why would we want to bring Bison back to the UK? And we spent a few days over there, saw some of their projects and stood, you know, in, in Marshorst. There was a herd of must be about 23 bison in front of us. No fences between us and them with their, you know, the, the Dutch bison ranger. They had the, there was a calf that had been born a couple of days before. And it was just being in that environment with the animals without fences between you was really, really powerful. And we spent lots of time in there. And it's interesting because they haven't done a huge amount of detailed research on yeah. the environmental impacts in Holland, which is a bit annoying because we're <laughs> to do it ourselves. But if you are there in those spaces, you can see and hear and smell the richness of biodiversity. You know, there's there's fungi everywhere. There's insects buzzing. There's birdsong. It's it's full of life and you can, yeah. you can see and feel it. And like I say, on the bus on the way back, everyone was like, we've got to make this happen. We've got to do this in England. We've got to make it happen in Kent. So that was really sort of the genesis of it. And then we were able to secure people's postcode lottery funding to mm. sort of kickstart, initiate the project. And that was three years ago, really. Um, and since then, we secured the funding and we've just been building, developing the project. So it's a, it's a really good partnership between the two organisations because they own the land. They've got the experience of managing the land. And we've got the animal husbandry experience mm. we deal with importing the animals and all the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, I really a really good sort of partnership in terms of doing that. And a really part of it was to, first of all, show that it can be done. Mm-hmm. Incredibly complicated and difficult project to do the well, first that, one. I was going to ask that. What was the hardest part of the project? <sighs> um, licensing, right. logistics, bringing animals in from Europe into a, it's it's not a zoo. They're not domesticated animals. It's mm. a, 
it's a thing that doesn't really exist in legislation. <laughs> so trying to create, trying to convince organ, you know, government organisations that it, it needs to work like this when there, you know, there just isn't a process. There isn't a system to do right. it. It has been really, really complicated. Yeah, the whole project is over five hundred hectares. Five hundred hectares. Yeah, wow. so, it's, so it's a huge area of woodland. That five hundred is divided up into three separate areas. So there's. Right. About 200 hectares will have bison, Exmoor ponies, and Iron Age pigs sort of doing their stuff and rewilding Mm -hmm. that landscape. Another 230-odd hectares will have Exmoor ponies, Iron Age pigs, and longhorn cattle. So we can do a direct comparison with the impact the bison have and what longhorns have with those other species. And then there's about another 100 hectares, which will continue to be managed by the Wildlife Trust with manual coppicing and volunteers going in there and removing sort of bracken and rhododendrons as they've done for the past few decades. And over the next few years, really, really detailed monitoring of those three sites to look at the differences. That's really cool. That I really like that because you're going to get such good data from that. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, one of the criticisms of the project has been, you know, why don't you just use cattle? Why don't you just use longhorns? They'll do the same thing. Um, well, Maybe they will. We'll, we'll find out. We don't out. know yet. Yeah. Good, yeah. good question. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and the reality is, is we can already see what the bison are doing that we don't think longhorns are going to do. And it's where there used to be, because the blains are a really complex bit of woodland. There's there's old oaks in there, but not very many. There's mm. a lot of really crap um, non-native pine plantations. There's areas of chestnut coppice, and there's areas where they chopped down the pine, and it's just regenerated in incredibly dense monoculture silver birch. Thousands, thousands, thousands of trees, all growing at the same height, at the same rate, blocking out the sun for everything else underneath. But what the bison are already doing is they're just literally walking through <laughs> that regrowth. You know, we were wondering, you know, how long is it going to take them to get into the middle of it? They just walk. <laughs> it's as if it isn't there. It's yeah. like walking through long grass for them. They just walk straight through it. And they've created these big, open sort of almost like footpaths mm. right through the middle of this that they use all the time. So the light's hitting the ground. They're nibbling the back at the sides. They're eating everything that's growing there. They're leaving their dung all along it. So next spring, there's just going to be an absolute explosion. of me- Like a narrow meadow, yeah. All along that. Absolutely. And they'll create openings and clearings all through that. Uh, you know, they're doing it already. They've only been in there a couple of months. Where I've seen longhorns sort of browsing, they'll nibble around the edges but they won't have that level of physical impact on the environment as Mm. quickly. That's amazing. Yeah, that's so exciting to hear that. So how, because I know, uh, uh, sorry, I mean, I'm going to compare this to NEP only because we recently did an episode with Penny Green from NEP. So she mentioned the animals at NEP aren't supplemented with food. There's enough in there. Is that the same with the bison and stuff like that? There's enough in there for that you don't have to feed them all? No, absolutely. The the plan is that once they're sort of out in, in the full landscape, that there'll be no supplemental feeding. They will eat what is out there and that will change seasonally. Part of the whole project is to see what they eat at different times of the year. So yeah. uh, two of the females have got radio trackers on them so we can see exactly where they're spending their time um, in different areas of the woodland. And how many do you have We're planning not to supplementally feed at all. If it gets to an absolute crisis point, we will look at it. <gasps> yeah, then, yeah, then it's an option, it. but it's not, it's not a direct uh, going to happen. But how many have you got in there at the moment? So at the minute, we've got three females. Mm-hmm. So we've got a, a, a older matriarch and two young females. Right. Um, and they've already formed a really cohesive little mini herd. 
Um, they follow the matriarch around. She tells them where to go. If they scare off, she will call and they will come back. Um, and we should, with any luck, have a bull arriving sort of towards the end of this month. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. And they'll be breeding and creating a natural family-based herd, which will, again, it's really important that they come sort of to to a herd that way because they'll want to stay together. The youngsters will watch what the females are eating and learn Mm. from them and have that really diverse sort of food base. Oh, that's really exciting. Do you know what, a minute ago, because like, my next question is what are the benefits? But well, I think you just said most of them because that is like absolutely, <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? It's it's, And I love that kind of direct comparison to see like, because there's strengths in everything, right? And these things don't, you, you know, they can't be blanketed everywhere, but you can actually find the strengths in each one of these kind of land areas and go, well, look, we know what is possible from longhorn cattle to bison to the ponies uh, to the people coppicing. And then you can kind of like merge that and to go like, we'll use what you need to use from all of this. This is the work involved and these are the strengths. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, bison projects are going to be complicated mm. and expensive and, and fiddly because of the licensing issues. And they won't work in a lot of places. But if we've got an idea of what they do or what longhorns do, then people can can choose what they're going to use in terms of these sorts of projects in the future. And the reality is, is what might be best is, is, is cattle and bison. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like you said, diverse countries, so maybe a mixture of everything. (laughs) Absolutely. And, and, you know, different things will be right for for different places. Yeah, absolutely. And so with rewilding and like, because you mentioned some of the comments about this this kind of project online, just with the language perspective as well. But I guess whenever these topics come up, I I always, I I feel like I'm always there in the sideline just reading. Like I'm always kind of like, because I like to learn. So I like to follow the, the discussion and kind of read along. But with these kind of projects, they often get a kind of constructive, sometimes not so much, but sometimes constructive or people just asking questions. Sometimes people just are looking for a, I don't agree statement to shout. But did you get that with this project? Was there kind of a, not a lot, but did you get any backlash with this? Uh, not very much, to be honest. The vast mm. majority of people have been incredibly supportive and, and really positive about the project. I mean, in terms of the technical phrasing of it, we're referring it to as a wilding project. Mm. You know, it, it's the wilder bling. It, we're not really using the word rewilding because of the connotations that you're trying to get back to something. We can't recreate the Pleistocene or, or something like that. But what we can do is we can put back the missing species, the missing systems, mm. recreate the food webs that should exist, and that will make it wilder. Yeah. So, so see, I, I really like that approach. I like that because I think it's it's progressive and it needs to be the way it is with a lot of these things. Absolutely. And what we'll create, it'll be something completely new. We mm. don't know what that's going to end up looking like. You know, we've got to be very honest about that. You know, people say, oh, which species will it benefit? Um, lots. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, 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 Take your pick. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out which ones because actually a lot of the time we're operating from a place of ignorance with this. You know, we mm. make assumptions about where species live and what they like and what their yeah. ideal habitat is. But in so many cases, the more we look at it, actually we're completely wrong. What we're looking at is the niches a species being pushed to where it can scrape a survival. Yeah. Yeah. It's not where it wants to be. It's where it's been pushed to on the margins and where it's been able to survive. It's not where it wants to be at all. Um, when you let, for example, NEP is a great example. So for nightingales, everyone's assumed that chestnut coppicing of a particular age is where they need to be to nest. Mm. And then at NEP, they create these massive, messy, complicated, scrubby banks full of thorns. And guess what? It's full of nightingales. They love it. <laughs> They'd much rather be there. But guess what? We've, we've tidied and neatened all of that out of our landscape. Right. So it, is, it doesn't exist anymore. Mm. But that, that's what they really want. 
So it's like these accidental finds almost. You don't know what's going to come out from it. Yeah. And and a project like this, we're hoping to find lots of things like that. Yeah. And I like that like acceptance of, you know, we are running this with a place of ignorance. And sometimes with that, I wonder if that's where sometimes the criticism comes because you have a history of us going, well, we think we know what we're doing. An attitude of we're not working from ignorance. We're working from what we want to do. So I wonder if sometimes that's why with wilding programs and stuff like that, that's where the criticism comes from, the fear of the unknown, right? Absolutely. And the reality is what we're trying to create is we're trying to create, as I said, those those missing ecological systems, the food webs. Nature needs complexity to thrive. Mm. And humans are rubbish at creating complexity. We do things neatly. We'll do this block of copsine over here and that block over there. And then we'll leave it five years and then we'll do that over there. You know, if you leave nature to do it in an incredibly dynamic, complex, chaotic way, that creates far more little niches for nature that we don't know about, that we don't even think about. You know, some of the research coming out of Poland suggesting that actually birds that are nesting in woodland with bison have a better survival rate of their eggs because they use bison fur to line their nests and it's better insulation in winter. Right. Things that we don't even know about, that we don't think about, that we can't artificially recreate because we don't know it's missing. And the nibbling of bison on the bark creates these really small spaces, which apparently are really important for specific insects to nest in. All that complexity, we can't recreate. So if we put the right species back in, in into these spaces, they will do that in a way that we can't even imagine. When when you hear, if you hear, I don't know if you have heard this question, but like if people say to you, like, you know, well, I guess you have because some of your team were asking this before they saw them in, uh, where was it? You went in the oh, into, into Holland. Into Holland, yeah. So if people say to you, like, you know, I mean, what's the point though? Like, what have we not got other means to do so? What's the point of doing all this money, all this work for bison? What is the point if we don't know? I mean, you might have already said it, but what do you reply to that? I mean, the project itself is fantastic. What it's going to do is create an area of woodland actually really close to Canterbury city centre. We're only five miles away from the centre of Canterbury here. So Mm. a really busy part of the country, we're going to create an oasis for biodiversity and show really the impact that we can have and create that that area. But I suppose the more more important part of this project is, is showing that it can be done and inspiring other people to do similar things. So we're already talking to two groups who want to do bison projects in, in England and, and how we can help them, how we can make it work. So it's it's the project itself, which is really important. It's going to create that resilient habitat. So the bite, the activity and the complexity will make it far more resilient within this woodland to climate change and drought and floods and, and disease. So that's really important. But it's it's the inspiration for other projects as well. I think one of the reasons why it's got such fantastic media uptake and people are so excited about the project is that at the moment, if you read the the news about the environment, it's dreadful, it's doom, it's gloom, everything's dying, everything's on fire. Mm. We're losing 70% of us of wildlife since the 70s. It's horrific. But the problem with that is it, it gives people a feeling of real hopeless desperation and that there's nothing we can do. It's awful. It paralyzes people with, with fear and, and gloom. Um, and so to have a project like this that's that's happening now, that this sort of thing is the solution. This mm. is, is the solution to the problem is, is we create these spaces where nature can thrive and biodiversity can come back that you know will protect that environment. It will sequester more carbon. This scaled up across the country 
is what we have to do. And here's an example of it happening. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good that, news yeah. story. And it's it's really, you know, lots of people have said to me when we've been talking about the project, it's so inspiring to have something positive that we can talk about and focus mm. on at the minute because everything is so bleak. But here's some, it's actually happening. Yeah, it's on quite a small scale at the minute, but it's showing you we can do it. It's really exciting. I'm, I'm really excited to- to see where it goes and to see what comes out of it as well like you said there's so much to learn that is you know unpredictable because we just don't know what we're going to find out from it yep. so you know it could be a few things could be several hundred things it's it's or several thousand it's yeah so i'm really excited to see what the project brings and how it develops and goes forward my last question for you is and maybe it won't be away from rewilding but away from what we have been talking about is if you could pass on one tip or recommend something for people to try in nature to connect with it or just enjoy it, what would you pass on as your tip? Um, the obvious one is, is come and visit Wildwood. Yeah, of course. Um, Why would we not say that? <laughs> yeah. Come and visit Wildwood. You know, immerse yourself in our natural environments. You know, see some of these fantastic animals. You know, you know, see the bears and the wolves and the lynx. Spend a bit of time watching elk walking through a woodland. It's it's yeah. It's a really powerful experience. You know, we get, you know, 250,000 visitors a year across our two parks. But, you know, particularly this time of year, it's quiet, it's peaceful. You can really spend some time, you know, in nature and around the animals. But, you know, if you can't get to one of our parks, you just get out in the woods, you know, go and spend some time just in the peace and the quiet of the woodland, you know, in the green. You know, this time of year in autumn, you've got beautiful colours, it's peaceful, there's fungi, it's yeah. Make the effort to spend a bit of time just in nature. It's it's good for the soul, it's good for your mental health, it's good for your physical health. Mm. And it's it's a powerful reminder of, of what we've got, how valuable it is, and, and the need to protect it. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. A pleasure to hear about Wildwood. And it was, it, you know, it's also nice to talk because usually I talk to people about these places and I've never been to them. It's so nice <laughs> to talk to someone to somewhere, a place that I've actually been to as well. And I will come back to because yeah, I love Whitstable as well, which you're not far from. So I do like to do like to come down. But yeah, I'll come for a visit and maybe we can, we will do it on location. We absolutely will. Absolutely. Fantastic. I'll tell you well, what, let's, the, let's do next year. <laughs> there'll be some new exciting bison news fairly soon. So, so come down and, uh, oh God. Come down and see us. You're not even that far away. This is the thing. It only takes me an hour to get to Whitstable. Right. Oh God, we've got to do it now. We've got to do come it. So visit. yeah, I will do. Um, but thank you so much for being on the show and um, enjoy your weekend. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Ryan. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.